Welcome. This is the last week in Second Peter, and we got a lot to do. It's actually uh, 18 verses, uh, and so I know we got some new faces, and that's that's fine. So we're just gonna I'm gonna do a little bit of a recap, but then we're gonna jump into this because there's just a lot. I'm not gonna read through it all at once again because it's a lot, and so we will just do our best to work our way through this. I've titled this sermon "Grace," which is infinitely patient, because when we look at Second Peter, the whole theme has just been this idea of grace. And, and you probably wouldn't read Second Peter if you just read it you know, in, in one sitting, which wouldn't take that long. It's just three, three shorter chapters. And we'll come away with, wow, this is just full of grace. And yet when we look back at what Peter's already talked about and covered, it is, it's grace upon grace upon grace. And he's going to end it here with that we would grow in grace. And so that's why we've titled this one in particularly, Grace, which is infinitely patient, Second Peter chapter 3, 1 through 18. I have a question, though, and uh, whether you want to make it rhetorical or not, uh, is the sense of, uh, have you ever been mocked for anything? Right? I mean, like, like I mean, like, mocked, not, not teased, right? Not, like, made fun of, like, uh, you know, again, like Andrew mentioned, the you know, Viking Packer thing. Like, yeah, we can tease. I mean, some people fight over that, and that's fine. But, I mean, but, like, actually mocked, right? Um, the definition actually of, a, of, of mock uh, is actually to tease or laugh at in a scornful or contemptuous manner, right? A, in a scornful way. Have you, been, have you been mocked, right? Or, and maybe you were the one that, that was the one doing that, right? Um, I remember I was thinking back, I was trying to think, of, have, have I been the recipient of actually being mocked where people were trying to cause me pain or harm? And, and all I could think about was like, I don't know, in high school, I just thought, I wanted to be everyone's hero. And so I, was, I would mock the bullies, right? Which then also makes me a bully. You know what I mean, if you think about it? So it didn't really work out too well. But really the only thing I could think of that when I've actually been like mocked and, and, and looked at as less than and made fun of has, has honestly been for my beliefs and my belief system, the belief in a God, let alone a God that I think actually physically lived on this earth and that died for my sins and that's going to return someday. Right now that people can make fun of. A couple years ago, I was working at, I think it was about five years ago, I worked at a, an injection mold plastic company, which is what Ben does, except he's a higher up. I was just an intern. Um, and uh, anyways, at this company, one of the other interns that worked with me was actually a, a Mormon. And, and when I got hired at this, at this company, the president of the company is a smaller uh, company, the CEO, he walked me around to everybody. And at the time I was an intern at, at Hope Community Church downtown, studying to be a pastor. And he introduced me to all the workers there. He said, hey, this is Brian. He's studying to be a pastor. I hired him because I figured we needed more Jesus in here. And I was like, whoa, like, all right, no, no pressure. And yet at the same time, it allowed me freedom, right? To be able to talk about my faith. But there was a, this, this Mormon kid that I worked with. I say kid, he was 20, he was in college. And um, that kid got mocked. That kid was just relentlessly getting uh, abused because of his belief uh, in, his, in his system and his religion. And I was having to stand up for him way more than I had to stand up for my, I never got made fun of for my beliefs. And yet this kid got picked on. And so I talk about that because I wonder if when we look at this passage, Peter's going to say this. He's going to say there are going to be false teachers that are going to mock you. There are going to be people in your midst and among you that are going to ridicule you for what you believe. 
So let's give a little bit of context. Again, there's these false teachers, 2 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 10. I mentioned this. There were also some false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. All right, and this is a warning, obviously, to, to, to Peter's church, but it's also a warning to everybody who reads this in any church that's ever existed that we could look around at the people around us and say, am I, am I a false teacher? Are you a false teacher? Are we, are we deceiving one another? Are we twisting God's word to say something that it was never intentionally meant to say? So there's kind of these three things we looked at in chapter two, the sins of the false teachers, that they denied that Jesus was actually God. They denied that there would be a future judgment. And then Peter says, whoa, 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 there will be a future judgment. If he didn't spare these three different things, if he didn't spare the world with a flood, if he didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, that if there's these other people that were not spared, why do you think he's going to spare anybody else who's spewing false lies about him? And then, and then we looked at last week, the sins of the false teachers elaborated that they actually are going to take the words and teachings of Jesus and turn their backs on him and say, thanks for the, thanks for the tip, Jesus. I'm not going to go monetize this and abuse people with what you've said. So our outline, if you will, just kind of overarching uh, is that people will mock you for what you believe. This is what Peter's going to tell us. So he starts off by saying, remember what you've been told. Remember what you've been told. So he says this, now it's starting in in, uh, chapter three, verse one. He says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. And I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you into wholesome thinking. Again, going back on last week, it's the same kind of language that he's using, saying that we are continually sinning with our eyes. He said, I want, I want this to change. There needs to be a heart change here. He says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the prophets and by the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles, that the apostles are eyewitnesses. And that's what Peter is saying over and over and over, that I've, I've seen the risen Lord. I've seen him. He told me and he sent me to teach these things. He says, look at the track record, right? God is batting a thousand. It's football season. So he's got, what's a perfect QB rating? 192? What is it? 158.3. Sounds very precise. And it's a stupid record. There's stupid stat. Anyways, he's saying, look at the track record. It's perfect. It's always perfect. Every single time he's, he said something was going to happen and it happened. He said he's going to set his people free from Israel and it happens and all these things over and over and over. And Jesus says, I'm going to be killed and crucified and I'm going to establish this new covenant in my blood, which we will partake of together after. And I'm telling you right now, that sounds crazy. That sounds crazy to a watching world and a listening world. Well, you you believe, you believe Jesus was, was God I saw a thing the other day that when somebody comes with you like with a conspiracy theory, you know, like, oh, wait, you believe we landed on the moon? That you actually just go up a level? Like, you believe in the moon, right? Sorry, it just just made me think, you believe in Jesus was God? You believe in Jesus? Right, I just, sorry. I do, I do believe in Jesus. I think he was a real historical figure and I believe that he was actually God. Would you believe that judgment day is coming? I mean, come on, isn't that kind of old school? It's a little barbaric, don't you think? Yes, I I believe that judgment day is coming. Well, you believe in a heaven and hell? I'm cool with heaven, but the whole hell thing, what are you talking, man? That's that's old school. Well, you believe, you okay, you actually believe that someday this God man Jesus is gonna come back to this earth 
and he's going to fix everything and make it all right. Yeah. I mean, it sounds asinine. It sounds ludicrous. Peter says, remember these things that God has done because he's proven himself over and over and over. And yes, we're waiting. He says this, they will say, or excuse me, verse three, above all, you must understand that in the last days, the word, the phrase, the last days, it's actually a, a phrase that is used a lot. I grew up in a church that was infatuated with the last days and what's going to happen at the end times and what's it look like in this piece and this graph and this chart and these numbers and all these things, right? They just, they love this stuff. But the last days is a phrase that is used all throughout scripture. It's actually used in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis 49 verse 1, Isaiah 2, Jeremiah 23, 20, Ezekiel, David, Hosea, Micah, Acts 2, 17, 2 Timothy 3, 1, Hebrews 1, 2, uh, uh, James 5, 3, and Jude 18, to name a few. It's used all throughout the Bible, the last days. And Peter here now is saying, you must understand that in the last days, that Peter understood the last days are happening now, they happened then, and we don't know how long these last days are going to go on for. It says, in these last days, scoffers will come scoffing. Right? Mockers will come mocking and following their own evil desires. Those evil desires are what we looked at last week, that they care only about themselves. They go back to their own animalistic instinct of I only care about me and me only. But what Peter does here is he's saying that these last days are both then and now. That it's been almost 2,000 years since Peter wrote these words down. How can it be then and now? Well, that's implied. Because a lot of the New Testament writers actually say that the last days started at the death of Jesus. And yet there's still future things to uphold. On verse four, it says, they will say, where is the coming that he's promised? Where is it at? Where is this coming from? Is he actually gonna come? I know he said he was gonna come back, but hey, it's been a couple thousand years here. He said he was going to come back. Matter of fact, in the book of Revelation, he says, behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come quickly. He says it about five times in the last chapter of the book. Behold, I come quickly. Well, what's quickly mean, Jesus? 2,000 years? Well, we're going to get there. Peter actually answers that question. They will say, where is the coming he has promised? Ever since our ancestors lived, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Or we're not even talking the last 2,000 years. They actually, because now they're, they're 2,000 years ago, they're saying for the last couple thousand years, everything's just happened, God. Yeah, sure, there's a creator. Sure, there's a, there's a deity and he made this, but everything just goes on as it goes on. So Peter, though, is going to have a couple points. He's got three kind of sub points to answer that. Where is this coming that Jesus promised? He says, right here in verse 5, God did create everything. He says, but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, right? Ruach is what it is. It's his, it's his breath. Like when you take a, a deep breath, that, that life-giving breath, that's this, the word, right? That by his word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Uh, there's actually a, a lot of... Uh, there's probably five or six different views on what did Peter mean by water and out of water and by water. Um, 
I'll just read what one commentary says. He says, he actually said, we'll, we'll settle on this uh, answer. He said, God used the water as an instrument in forming the world. And perhaps Peter stressed the water for rhetorical purposes, since it is the agent of judgment in the next verse. So he's going to talk about this water again. And he's already mentioned the flood previously in his, in his book. So he says, God did create everything. But the second point is that God is not just a clockmaker, right? He didn't just set everything into motion and then step back and say, good luck. That's not what, and, and, and Peter's proof text on this is going back to the flood. He says, by these waters, also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. That he's not just some grand designer, that he's entered into this world on purpose and specifically in that purpose to judge the wickedness of humanity, to judge people. That's what he, what he did. He purposefully entered into this space. And he's saying he doesn't just sit back and watch. The third one, then, his conclusion is that God will intervene again. So again, in verse 7, he continues this thought. He did create everything. He's not just sitting back watching, and he will do this again by the same word, by the same breath, this ruach that creates. By this same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, right? He did it again. Why won't he punish the wicked again? He did it once before and he's going to do it again. So again, this mockery of where is this coming? I don't know. I don't know when it's going to happen. And if you ever hear anybody say, oh, I know when he's going to come back. I know. It's, read the signs. You just... you. You, you just walk away. Don't mock them or don't laugh at it, but you just say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to disagree with that one. And Peter's actually going to talk about this. So again, I don't know when it's going to happen, but since it hasn't happened yet, what Peter's going to tell us is that there actually now is still time to repent. There's still time. So Peter here says, remember what you've been told. And secondly, he says, now that you remember it, now I need you to believe it. I need you to believe what the prophets have said. I need you to believe what the apostles have said. I need you to tell to believe what Jesus has said. He says this in verse eight, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The psalmist, uh, King David in Psalm 90 says the same exact phrase. Uh, one, of a, one commentary, his name is, is Big, B-I-G-G. -G. He says this, the desire of the psalmist is to contrast the eternity of God with the short span of human life. What St. Peter wishes is to contrast the eternity of God with the impatience of human expectations. Jesus, God, you said you're going to return soon. You said you're going to make all of this right soon. And what Peter then says, and he's remembering what the psalmist said, that a day unto the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like, the day, like, like a day. He's saying, this is what we use in theology. We say the eminent return of Jesus. There's eminence. There's, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen at any moment. It's going to happen soon. But we are uncertain about the timing of this whole thing. And then he continues, and he says this in verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Why? Because our lifespan and our expectations are so short and shallow in comparison to who God is. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as son understood slowness. 
Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but that he wants everyone to come to repentance. Jesus, what are you waiting for? I want more people to know about me. I want everybody to be saved. False teachers are using God's patience as mockery against God when that is the very thing that should lead them to repentance. Over and over throughout Scripture, it says that God is slow to anger, but he will not delay that anger forever. Now, I want to have a little aside here because I think it's important. Right here in this verse, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness, but instead he is patient with you, not wanting you to perish, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, some commentators will kind of skirt around this and say that Peter is only addressing his church. He doesn't want any of his church to perish. He wants all of his church to come to repentance. That's not what this passage is talking about. Everyone means everyone, all means all, and he doesn't want anyone to perish. Well, how does this work? Doesn't God sovereignly do things in the hearts of men and women to, to call them to himself? And they, they are irresistibly drawn to him. So what does this mean that he is not willing? One author actually used this phrase in his book, Love Wins. It's this idea of universalism that, hey, at the end of the day, guess what? Doesn't matter. God, God, you're going to see God face to face and we will bow down before him and we will worship him. Love's going to win in the end. That's universalism. And he uses this verse as his text. God is not willing that any should perish. Shouldn't God get his way? This is part of meeting outside. Nice and bees. Go away. Satan. All right. Continuing on. <laughs> um, he uses this, this phrase, right? God's not willing that any should perish, so then I think God will get his way in the end. So what does it mean here by, by willing? Uh, I teach this every year in theology class about God's wills, and, and I draw this big umbrella, if you can imagine, a giant umbrella with two handles. And I actually did some Google image searches last night. That actually exists. Why? I don't know. It doesn't look very useful, uh, but it does exist, which is a thing, okay? So again, what, is it, what does Peter mean here by the will of God? Jonathan Edwards uses this idea there's, that, that there are two wills of God. And when we were reading scripture, we need to discern what will of God is actually being talked about here. Jonathan Edwards calls the first will God's will of decree, or maybe an easier way to understand it is God's sovereign will. So this giant umbrella that spans eternity past, eternity future, that anything and everything that's ever happened is under the control of God, and he decrees things and they happen. For example, I had no choice to be born a white man in 1985, October 9th in New Britain, Connecticut. I had no choice in that. Not, a, not one ounce of choice in that. God decreed it and it was. And then... There's this second aspect of his will that's called will of command or his moral will. Well, we would say this is scripture, the scriptural commands that we find in the Bible. And so what we find in scripture is that Jesus wants people to repent and he wants all people to repent, but there are human aspects and human things that we do and say that have eternal consequences. Over and over in the scriptures, it talks about that today is a day of repentance. Why would we be called to repent if we didn't have a choice? And so we see this giant umbrella with these two handles coming down. 
And in between that is God's moral will, and now that we have a choice. I can choose to stay in that moral will of God or choose to be outside of the moral will of God, and yet the entire time maintaining and being underneath the sovereign will of God or his will of decree. Another way, and I mentioned this when you're going through our kind of reformed theology, but use this illustration of an of a individual who's walking on the side of a street. They're walking to work every day, and they see this huge mansion. And there's this sign on the side that says, free tours, anytime, 24-7, right? 24-7 mansion tours. Why? Just all analogies break down. Don't worry about all that. All right, but you can do a free mansion tour anytime you want. And he walks by this day after day after day after day, and he finally says, you know what? I'm going to go check out this mansion. And he finally goes up, knocks on the door. They let him in, and he walks in, and he sees this plaque, all these plaques on the wall, and his eyes drawn to this one that says his name will enter and get a free tour at this exact time on this date. That's this, okay? I don't understand all the sovereignty of God, but I know that my human choices, whether I repent or don't repent, have eternal consequences, and that's what Peter's talking about. God doesn't want anyone to perish. God doesn't want anyone to continue living in sin. That's why he's given us his moral will that we would obey and thrive in our lifetime. There's this thing of God's sovereignty and human interaction that seem to just be in antinomy with one another. They're not in harmony. They're just constantly butting heads. The answer is yes. God is sovereign and we are responsible. Just like somehow there's an umbrella with two handles. It's possible. It's $39.99 on Amazon if you're interested. I feel like one big umbrella would be far more efficient, but I could be wrong. So moving on, 2 Peter chapter 3, looking at verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord, here's that phrase again, the day of the Lord, this end time, this judgment day will come. Actually, in the, in the Greek, it's actually first. This will come the day of the Lord. He's emphasizing this in the Greek, that this is going to happen. But how is it going to happen? It's going to come like a thief. It's going to come like a thief. It's going to come when we least expect it. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 24. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, that this day of the Lord, it's the same phrase, will come like a thief in the night. I don't know when this is going to happen. It says the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. See, because it's kind of this, one of my favorite covenants, I know this is kind of like a nerdy thing about me, but one of my favorite covenants is this aspect of that when we look at the, the Noahic covenant, when God made this promise with Noah, he makes this covenant, he says, I promise you by the sign of the rainbow, I will never destroy the world again with water. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, what about everything else? <laughs> like, he's like, no, 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 that's, I, I still reserve that right. All right, so he says, I will never destroy the earth again with water. And here he's saying it's going to happen by fire. Does he mean literal fire here? I don't know. But it's going to happen. Judgment day will happen. So today is the day of repentance. He is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I want to quote here Thomas Schreiner. He says this, circumstances may suggest that the day of the Lord will not arrive. Right? It's been thousands of years. When is this going to happen? The false teachers may have scorned the notion of a sudden change in history. Okay, and that's the whole idea. We'll come like a thief in the night. It's going to happen. Boom, done. What's the next thing that's going to happen on the doomsday clock watch of Jesus' return? 
It's going to come like a thief night. You have no idea. So you probably should be ready. How are we ready? Believe him. Be ready. Believe in Jesus. But then continue this quote. He says this. However, this day of the Lord will arrive suddenly, and so do not, uh, and so no definite signs of its coming can be trumpeted. Doesn't matter what color the moon is. Doesn't matter how, what month it is with the moon. Doesn't matter if there's a pandemic or a global pandemic or not. There's no signs here. No powerful person might rise. There's not going to be a microchip implanted on me that's the mark of the beast. How, I mean, I'd love, I would love a microchip. Pay everything, man. I lose my cards all the time. That happened the other day. I, was, I couldn't find my target card. I get home. I'm like, oh, Angela, cancel the card. I don't know where it went. Henry's running around. Hey, hey look at this. I got a target card. It's like, where'd you get that? Your wallet. It's like, what? I'll take a chip. I'll take a chip. This is not, these are not signs that can be predicted of like, yeah, well, the end of the world is coming. Wow, whoa, whoa. Listen, what, what Paul and Peter and Jesus are saying, the end of the world is always coming. And we need to be patient in that patience of God by not judging us now is so that all can come to repentance. There's a lot of chaos in the world right now. And I always use this phrase of Maranatha. It's this Hebrew word of Lord, come quickly. I want this to end. I want it to be fixed. And yet then I had kids. And now, as a dad, I'm going, just wait. Just wait. Please be a little bit more patient. I want my kids to learn about you. And that should be our heart about everybody who's not believing. So then, the final thing, remember what you've been told, believe what you've been told, and finally, then we look forward. We look forward to that day. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought we to be? Right, again, not by works, but we've been justified. So in our sanctification of becoming more like Christ, we ought to live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. What does that mean? I don't know. But what it means is human actions have eternal consequences. And if we quote Peter in his previous book, so that we can proclaim with words the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. These elements, he's talking about earth, fire, wind, water, heart, with our powers combined. Thank you. Thank you for that. These elements, right, they're going to they're gonna melt with this heat. Now, again, there's a lot of speculation. Does he mean that this earth is going to completely just kablooey, done, gone, and then God's going to make a new one? Or when he says it'll be destroyed, does he mean like the earth was destroyed with the flood and then things were made new then? I don't know. It seems like this earth is going to be the earth that we will always be on, but he's going to fix it. He's going to make it all new. Because he says this, but keeping with his promise, what is his promise? His promise that Jesus will stay true to his promises and he will return. We look forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Where the right justice of God runs freely and courses through our veins and there's no animosity between anybody or anything. It's perfect the way it always should have been. He makes it all right. We look forward to that. He says it three times in these couple verses. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. How do we do that when we're united with him 
because it's not by works, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. You hear that? His patience of not coming back means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, right? Peter's like, man, Paul, he's, got, he's kind of long-winded. Some of these things are difficult to understand. But he says this, though, that what it, which ignorant and unstable people, the same word that he uses about the false teachers in the previous chapter in chapter two, these ignorant and unstable people distort. They take the writings of even Paul and they twist it to manipulate people as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. It's gonna happen. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard. This is the idea of a Roman soldier and their shields actually would kind of link together. And as they're linked together, that's what he's saying, be on guard, not by yourself. Let we, let's watch out for one another. Let's make sure that there aren't false teachers and prophets and bad ideas rising up amongst us. Let's keep each other accountable myself included, especially, so that we may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Francis Bacon in the 1500s used this phrase that knowledge is power. And I think it can be, right? That when we learn more, but, but it almost sounds like knowledge is power in the sense that I can overpower somebody with my knowledge. I will crush you with my theological knowledge or whatever I've gleaned from something. But what Peter has taught us in this, in this passage, in this book, is that knowledge should lead to love. He says to add to our faith knowledge, think, reason about who God is. Let's dig into his scriptures. Let's dig into the teachings of Christ, but what should pop out on the other side is love. Love for one another and love for a world that might even mock us. Calls us names, we love them. Unconditionally, the way that Christ loves us. So in closing, gospel application. God's grace is infinitely patient towards us. So I beg of you, repent. Today is the day of repentance if that hasn't happened. And then finally, brothers and sisters, we get to look forward to that day. We get to look forward to that day when everything will be right. And so it is with a heart that I plead with God and with Jesus. Yes, Maranatha, make it right. Will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? Will you pray with me? And we'll spend a time in communion together uh, and worshiping as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this book, this letter that the Apostle Peter, a man who saw you with his own eyes, a man who denied you to your face three times, and a man who was then forgiven by that one who he denied, writes these letters to us, to the church, to your bride, to maintain biblical orthodoxy, even when a watching world mocks us for it? Would we not be ashamed of the power of the gospel because the power of gospel is salvation to all who believe? So God, I thank you that you're patient, patient with me and patient with all of humanity, that you have not destroyed it yet in a right justice of judgment, 
but you're patient with us so that more people can know you. So God, now would you be honored and glorified as we partake of these elements, as we sing, as we remember what it is that your son did for us. And it's in Christ's beautiful name that we pray. Amen.